Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find our reading this morning on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together around your word. We pray today for Stephen as he comes, that, Father, as he preaches, you would free him from the fear of man, that you would overwhelm him with the fear of God. Lord, that you would keep him from error, that you would guide him into all truth, and that you would allow him to speak with power. And Father, for us as we listen, that we would listen in a way that would bring honor and glory to your name, that we would be attentive to the preaching of your word, that your spirit, Father, in power would apply your words to our hearts, that we might be changed, that we might be more like your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. How about that? User error. <laughs> so uh, we've been going through uh, a series as a church um, for the last few weeks about our God is, and and my assignment this morning is to is to work through really a. Um, a difficult doctrine of the Trinity. And, and the title of the message this morning is Our, Our God is, is Triune. And it's important as God's people to understand that we, search, that we serve and we worship and love a holy God. And it is not in a, God, a God of our imagination, it is not a God of our own making. It is God as He is. So it's an incredibly important question for us as human beings, as creatures, to ask and answer 
the question, who is God? This question, the answer to this question cannot come through our own thought processes, cannot come through our own creativity, cannot come through our own intelligence. In fact, the only way we can get an appropriate answer to this question is if it comes from God himself. The scripture reveals God, who he is, his character, his nature, what he's like, and our understanding must come from his revelation of himself and not from our own imagination. Amen? Here's the other part of it. It is of utmost importance, it is absolutely essential that we as God's people wholeheartedly believe what God has to say about himself. I'm going to say that again. It is absolutely essential and of utmost importance that we as God's people believe what God has said about himself. As creatures made in the image of God, we do not get to choose who God is. We do not get to edit who God is. We do not get to alter what God has to say about who he is and his nature. The reality is just saying those words in my mind sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? For us as his creatures, as those who have been made by him for his glory and his image, would think that we have the opportunity or we have the the privilege or the, uh, the right to alter what God has to say about himself. Simply put, we simply receive God's revelation of himself and the wise man accepts it. To do anything else is foolishness. So just a quick thought about the Trinity before we dig into the text. Uh, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But let's just start out by saying that. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. I, I'm sure most of you already know that. It was a word that was developed and used by our church fathers to label, to put a label on the relationship between the Father of Scripture, the Son of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit of Scripture. In this sense, in a sense, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is an incredibly difficult doctrine to understand, and we're never going to plumb the depths of this doctrine in the next 40 minutes. Right? That's not going to happen. We can spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks delving into every intricate detail of trying to understand the Trinity. In another sense, in another sense, the doctrine is quite simple. See, what we tend to do as human beings is take simple revelations from God and complicate them. <clears throat> if we take God's words at face value, and we believe that God is one because Scripture has said so, we will see that God is the Father, we will see that God is the Son, and we will see that God is the Holy Spirit, and they are distinct from one another, yet Scripture teaches us that God is one. That's a very simplistic way of saying it. 
And the text that we're going to look at this morning uh, demonstrates this. If you're going to write down, Athanasius gave us seven statements that I think are helpful. As you approach this doctrine, as we think about what God has said about himself uh, in the scriptures, I'm going to give you seven short statements. I would encourage you to write them down. And uh, we're going to, as we look at our text this morning, uh, think about these seven statements. The first statement is very simple. The Father is God. The Father is God. In Scripture, we will see this. In Scripture, it is abundantly clear everywhere that the Father is God. Jesus Christ prays to the Father. Um, God is designated as the Creator, as the Savior, as the Deliverer. Uh, the Father is God. The other thing that is the next statement that's fleshed out in Scripture is the Son is God. The Son is God. The third statement is the Holy Spirit is God. And then there are three similar statements. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. That's number five. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. There's number six. And number seven is there is exactly one God. So look at those seven statements together. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. There is exactly one God. And I would pose to you this morning that if we seriously look at the content and pages of Scripture, those seven statements ring true over and over and over and over again. You will read Scriptures that clearly point, and we will see these this morning, that clearly point to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, to His Godness. There are Scriptures all throughout the Bible that clearly point to the eternal, eternal nature of the Holy Spirit, this text being one of them, the omniscient nature of the Holy Spirit, the omnipotent nature of the Holy Spirit. It's clear that the Holy Spirit is God. So we have seven statements here. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. We will see the distinctions between these three persons just in these four verses. And finally, the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Behold, the Lord your God is one. The question is, how do those seven statements coexist? And quite simply, the, the terminology of the Trinity was given, was, was written in order to help us understand how those seven statements can be true at the same time. Here's the deal. The, the Scripture demands 
that we affirm these seven statements. The Scripture absolutely demands that we affirm these seven statements. And, and these seven statements are flushed out over and over and over again. I, I encourage you this week to take these seven statements as you do your Bible reading this week and just as you're reading your verses, write down what verses affirm each one of those statements. And it will blow your mind when you're, when you're reading the Scripture through that grid. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. The Scripture demands that we uh, affirm these statements, and these statements must be affirmed by Christians. Refusal, these seven statements are, are about God. Refusal to affirm these seven statements about God moves us into a dangerous and slippery slope into heresy. You, you might ask yourself the question, why is that? Well, it's because our God has clearly revealed things about Himself, and it is a very serious issue for human beings to take things that God has clearly revealed about Himself and reject them. Can you imagine, from the perspective of God, God telling His creation, this is who I am, and then the creation looking at God and saying, no, you're not. Folks, that's nuts. And let's not be the type of people who do that. It is a very serious matter for the creature to reject what the Creator has told us about Himself. Can I get an amen to that? It is a very serious matter for the creature to reject what the Creator has said about Himself. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, together. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that come, then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hand, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goat and ghosts and calves, but by means of his own blood. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Hebrews is a book that was written in order to help Jewish Christians understand to come to the conclusion that all of the Old Testament system, that the entire Old Testament system was given by God with a very specific purpose. And that very specific purpose was to point all of humanity to the need and necessity of Christ. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was weak, and we learn in the book of Hebrews, once Christ came, became obsolete. And what was weak about the Old Testament system is that it was a conditional covenant made between God and man. God said, I will do this if you will do that. I will bless you if you will obey me. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, but 
God never thought, never once thought that, oh, these people are going to keep these rules. God never thought that the Israelites were going to obey His commandments, ever. That was never the intention. In fact, we learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the law is given by God, and it is given the ministry of condemnation. The whole purpose of the entire Old Testament system, starting in the book of Leviticus and coming all the way through the end of the Old Testament, was to demonstrate that mankind in his own strength, seeking to please God, leads to only one thing, and that is condemnation. That there is no one on the face of planet Earth that does good and deserves or merits before God his favor. That's the whole point. And Hebrews is making this case over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> Hebrews makes the case that the Old Covenant had a lesser mediator. The Old Covenant was mediated through angels and through Moses. Moses died. Moses was a sinner. In fact, Moses was such a sinner that he was not even allowed to enter into the promised land. The Old Covenant had a lesser temple or a lesser tabernacle made with human hands. A tent that could be picked up and moved in a day. Sacrifices. Guys, think about this. Sacrifices made to the almighty God of the universe were brought to a tent. The sacrifices were less. They blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and doves and And the author of Hebrews is demonstrating over and over and over again how, how the new covenant is, is better. And one of the issues that he, he hits on directly is the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the issues with the, the, the priest in the Old Testament is that they were all sinners. And so every time a priest was going to go and represent the Israelites before God, the priest had to go and represent himself first. The priest would have to go and shed the blood of an animal for himself before he could go shed the blood of an animal for someone else. And then the priest would do that day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out. You know, it's incredible the amount of blood that was shed in the Old Covenant sacrificial system. That The fact that the Temple Mount had a series of aqueducts just to drain blood. They sacrificed so many animals, slaughtered so many animals, that they had to have systems in which the blood could drain out of the Temple Mount. Because the animals had to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And the high priest would be appointed and the high priest would serve. Then the high priest would die and another high priest would be appointed and the high priest would serve and the high priest would die. Over and over and over and over again. 
What's the point? The point is it's not done. No, the greatest weakness of the Old Testament system was the priesthood. Can you imagine? Just, just imagine a, a, any person in this auditorium, if, if, if a person in this auditorium was assigned to represent you before God. Can you imagine that? Because that's exactly what this was. The Old Testament systems set up a, the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, where God asked Moses to set his mercy seat. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, he tells them to make sure that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God has Moses make this, this mercy seat, this representative throne room of God on earth, according to the pattern that he was shown on the, mount, the mountain, because this, the Holy of Holies was meant as an earthly representation of the throne room of God. And this earthly representation of the throne room of God, the mercy seat representing the, the throne of God, the, the mercy seat had the cherubim coming up the sides of both sides of the mercy seat representing what we just sang, sang about, right? Cherubim and seraphim. And, and even the curtain, even the curtains inside the Holy of Holies had angels stitched into them to represent the myriads and myriads of angels of, in the throne room of heaven. And the high priest of God, the high priest of the people of Israel, could go into that room once a year on the Day of Atonement with a, uh, a, tr a tray of incense in front of them to keep a cloud of separation between them and the glory of God that was being revealed on the mercy seat. One time a year, the priest could go in there and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The reality is, and, and Scripture bears this out, that no human being can look at the face of God and live. But look what the text says. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So the, the, the priest of the Old Testament sacrificial system could enter a 20 by 20 tent room once a year with a cloud of incense in front of him to protect him from the glory of God that's being manifested on the mercy seat. That was it. One time a year. And here comes a priest. Here comes a priest 
that is serving in the greater tent, he's actually serving and ministering in the throne room of God in heaven. In the throne room that's not made with human hands, but in the throne room that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place of heaven. Jesus went face to face with God. Jesus didn't go into a room representing the throne room. He went into the throne room. And here's the deal. He went into the throne room on the basis of his own merit. The human high priest had to offer sacrifices of blood of animals in order to ceremonially cleanse himself enough to walk into the Holy of Holies with a cloud in front of him. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted as going into the very throne room of heaven before the Almighty God on the basis of His own merit. Let me ask you this question. Who would somebody have to be Who would someone have to be to be able to walk into the throne room of God without a veil in front of his face Are you hearing what I'm saying Walk into the throne room of God without anything separating him from the glory of God and live, and not just live, but live on the basis of his own merit. Can you think of a human being that can do that? Ladies and gentlemen, no, no man can look at the face of God and live. And yet Jesus walked right into the throne room of God and stood before his very presence. And not only that, it was there to this day. He never had to leave. You know what that says? You know what that screams from the mountaintops? Jesus is what? God. God. Without question. No one, ladies and gentlemen, 
but God himself could survive in the presence of God on the basis of his own merit. What mere human being can shed his own blood to atone for his own sin? Much less shed his own blood for the atonement of the sins of many. Jesus is God. And because Jesus was divine, He is able to stand as high priest forever. The Scripture teaches us at this very moment that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. These two verses should be all that any Christian needs to know unequivocally and without a shadow of a doubt the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the second. I want you to see this in this text. God, the Holy Spirit. This ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ of coming to the earth, of being born of a virgin, of living a perfect life, and sinless life of being uh, condemned to death on a cross to being raised from the dead was done through the Holy Spirit. How much more, verse 14, look at it with me, how much more will the blood of Christ, and here it is, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish. Here in this text, the author is making the argument for the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, how the Lord Jesus Christ being God in the flesh. And, and, and just look with me very quickly at Hebrews 1. I meant to go there with you. But look at Hebrews 1, speaking of the Son, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as he has inherited a name more excellent than theirs. Look at what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. God says of the Son, this is Christ. He is speaking to Christ and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this Christ, the work that he has done, according to verse 14, says it was done through the eternal spirit. Through the eternal spirit. I mean, you think about the life of Jesus. What happened at his birth? What happened at his conception? His birth, his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, his ministry. The Garden of Gethsemane, the crucifixion, His resurrection, the Spirit of God is there the whole way through. The Spirit of God is there empowering the Lord Jesus Christ, equipping the Lord Jesus Christ, encouraging the Lord Jesus Christ, enabling the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you something, ladies and gentlemen. Who can enable and equip and empower and encourage God? You mean God offered himself through something else? Yes. God offered himself through God. The eternal God. Just the word there, the definite article, the, that is speaking of a specific person. It doesn't say through a spirit or through a eternal spirit or through even his eternal spirit. It is a definite article pointing to the eternal spirit, the Son of God, God in the flesh, offered himself without blemish to God through the power of God. That's some amazing stuff, isn't it? Not only that, to kind of move outside of this text for a minute and to just ponder the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, the Apostle John describes the work of the Holy Spirit as being like the wind. 
and it just blows and it goes where it wills and it does what it does and it accomplishes what it accomplishes. The Spirit is doing this. The Spirit, according to the Scriptures, take people who are spiritually dead and spiritually blind and lost in their sin and resurrects them to a newness of life. Opens blind eyes and mute mouths and darkened minds. Dead souls. The Spirit's doing this. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And then Peter, describing the exact same thing, says, The men wrote as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. So which one is it? Yes and yes. The Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit to this day, as the Word of God is proclaimed, illuminates the truth of Scripture into the hearts and minds of human beings. It, it, it is an amazing thing to think that the Spirit of God, the one through whom the Scriptures uh, were inspired, is also the one who then personally comes and applies that word to you. And to me. So just in this little text, God the Spirit is empowering and enabling and equipping God the Son to offer Himself as a sacrifice to God the Father. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. Another way to think about it is how much more will the blood of God, who through the Spirit of God offered Himself without blemish to God. You see the argument? If the blood of heifers and bulls and goats purify you and sanctify the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Son of God who was offered by the power of the Spirit of God to God the Father purify your consciences to serve the living God? Make no mistake about it. God the Son was offered to God the Father. Jesus offered Himself through the eternal Spirit to God. When we think about salvation, when we think about what we are being saved from, many people are confused about it. 
Some people think we're being saved from the devil. There's views of the atonement called like the devil ransom theory where what Jesus actually did on the cross was buy us back from Satan. No. Some even talk about our salvation being salvation from sin. Now, while that is true, this is not the primary issue. The primary issue in salvation is that God is saving us from Himself. We are born in our sin. We are under the condemnation, not of sin, of God. We are under the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God. We are by nature children of wrath and enemies of God. And the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it, is a substitutionary, propitiatory death. What that means is, death was the sentence on a guilty sinner, and Jesus died in our place. I was supposed to die, Jesus died in my stead. And it was propitiatory in the fact that it satisfied the wrath of God. This was the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system, by the way. You're guilty. Go lay your hands on that animal. The whole picture of laying the hands on the animal was transferring guilt from me to that animal, and now that animal gets slaughtered. Jesus willingly laid down his life. God the Son willingly laid down his life and offered his own blood at the mercy seat of heaven to God the Father through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father willingly crushed his Son. Romans 8 tells us if he did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? These four verses. I'm going to read these seven statements. If I can find them. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Yet, there is exactly one God. Guys, those seven statements is the only grid through which Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 make any sense whatsoever. Turn with me real quick to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Just looking, thinking about this grid. We're going to read chapter 1 together. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he purposed or chose us in him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." See, God the Father purposed our salvation from the beginning. God the Son accomplished our salvation. And God the Spirit is in the business right now of applying His salvation to the human race. <coughs> and the result of this work is eternal redemption. Securing an eternal redemption. The wrath of God being satisfied and the consciences of human beings being purified from their dead works so that they can serve the living God in the new way of the Holy Spirit. How awesome is that? I want to read another text for you. Romans chapter 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words, and He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sorry, I missed this here. Too deep for words. And he searches hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who have loved God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and right now is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us before the throne room of heaven. The Son of God is interceding for us before the throne room of heaven. And then this brings this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When God plans to save a man and Jesus dies for the man and the Holy Spirit saves the man, the man is saved. And there is nothing on the face of planet Earth there is nothing in heaven that will separate that human being from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Our triune God completely and totally saved his people. Amen? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful for the work that you accomplished for us. You are worthy of all the glory. You are worthy of all the praise. And you get all the honor for what you have done. We love you, this church loves you and worships you for who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.